let's let's start. she's got COVID and I know other people have it's and I hope you're all doing well um, Suzanne came through it pretty well in a week she's stronger than I am um, it put me on my back for a couple of weeks it just it's strange no symptoms it just was a deep deep exhaustion it was so hard to do anything but you know I hope you're all doing well it's good to see you again genuinely good to see you um, we're passing around two lists, one for food, the snack sign up, and the other one um, for information. Um, I got some letters from Ellie saying that some new people had signed up. Say your name again. Esteban. Esteban what? Reyes. Esteban Reyes is new. Esteban, it's good to see you. Good to see you genuinely. Say your, say your name, sir. Jean, Jean was here last time. I feel like we've been away forever, God. You guys are still too young, but a day will come, a day will come. Um, here, just very, very quickly, before we, tonight's gonna be one of those fire hydrant nights, I think. I think I told you the story when I started all of this at St. Francis and in the first couple of weeks the man who was in charge of adult catechesis, very bright very and very fastidious, very fastidious, he was in charge of adult catechesis and um, what do you call that office that oversees marriages and, sorry? tribunal. Um, so he had a, um, a real grasp of church law and legal matters and very bright. At the end of <laughs> my first class <laughs> he said I came expecting a drink of water and instead I got a fire hydrant. <laughs> <laughs> it's gonna, just so you know it's gonna be that kind of a night. I, I'm, I want to try to pull together what we've been doing um, I didn't plan the COVID, you know, we planned to take a couple of weeks off just because we'd finished a series of works that were all related. Um, Leo, um, John Paul, Fide Razio, and um, Benedict's Regensburg. So, and as you know, um, my habit is to try to go through those thoroughly so we don't take them for granted. Um, Fide Razio and Regensburg were Peter Rezio as an encyclical Regensburg was an address to an academic audience. But they're both popes. They're speaking to a modern audience, it's us, and dealing with the most profound disorders of our time. So we had gone through um, several works that dealt directly with what all of them, Leo, you know, a century ago, John Paul, Benedict, and then C.S. Lewis in Abolition of Man, 
all of them were calling attention to this one fact. They weren't focusing on our faith. The, the three popes were not focusing on our faith. They were focusing on um, the disorders of our mind. That all of them were saying that the one thing most needed today was to recover healthy minds because we're in such an intellectual age for the last two centuries that if we didn't learn to, to get a better sense of our mind and mental health, um, it would affect our faith. And I'm trusting that everybody has seen that right now. Sorry? I just didn't remember the other one. I think it's on, Doc. Um, so, we've gone through a number of major texts. They're, they're little known. The, the one that would be best known would be C.S. Lewis's Abolition of Man because he's a popular apologist. Lots of people who are not Christians would read him because he's an intellectual. But um, who would read Leo's encyclical? Um, who would read Fide Ratio? And who would have read um, the Regensburg Address? I didn't ask for a show of hands, and I'm not going to do it, but I'm assuming that almost none of you would have read Fide Ratio and Regensburg Address. Those were papal statements, and they're seminal, they're crucial. So we went through a period where we were looking at a group of major documents that, for the most part, the world does not know, to try to strengthen our faith. And we came to the end of it, and what I wanted to do was take a break before we started Chesterton, because I think Chesterton is doing um, something that all of them are doing, but in a more ordinary way. He's not a pope. He's not speaking as an academic. He's not addressing academics. Even Lewis isn't doing that. Lewis is speaking to a popular audience. But Chesterton's a journalist. He, he writes daily articles. Um, and he wrote orthodoxy before he entered the Catholic Church. Um, he thought of himself as Christian, but he was not yet Catholic. I think I've told you before, this is the work that brought me into the church. It meant that much to me. He's speaking as a journalist, so he's speaking at a... It's so hard to get a hold of him. He's speaking in a language. He, he's using our spoken tongue. He's not an academic. He's using the tongue of the ordinary people. But he happens to be, I believe, one of the brightest minds of the 20th century. And in orthodoxy, he's taking the position um, of addressing the modern disorders, all of them, that Leo, Pope John Paul, Benedict, all covered but Chesterton does in a more ordinary way. He's, he's speaking as, a as an ordinary person to ordinary people, except he happens to be, I, I think, one of the most brilliant minds of the 20th century. So you can come away having read sentences and, and you know, you would have had no trouble with the language. You don't have to go to a dictionary. You really do. If anybody are, are, is going to dictionaries with Chesterton, put the dictionary away. Just keep reading. And I'm, I can't say, as a teacher, I've said this to students forever. Read. Just keep reading. Do not go to a dictionary. He's, he's, he's not using words that you'd have to look up. He's speaking as a journalist. 
but he happens to have a brilliant mind so you can read a passage and, and your mind can think, you know, I've understood it. I, there's nothing there that I have to look up in the dictionary. But if you go back and think about what you've just read, sometimes you'll blink and think, what did he just say? What, what, what in the world did he just say? I think I told you when I, when I first read him, I was so taken by him that I gave Chesterton's Orthodoxy to Suzanne. She started reading it and she got so angry reading him, she threw the book at me. It was a hardback. It was a hardback. <laughs> Thank God she missed. But it can, you know, it can, it can puzzle you. You can read it because he's so profound and think you, you know, you, the lines are easy. The language doesn't present a difficulty, but the depth of his thought does. So I wanted to leave him aside because it seems to me he goes to the heart of our church. Um, ex corde ecclesiae. Ex corde ecclesiae. From the heart of the church. Ex corde ecclesiae. He says in the opening chapters um, that the basis of this whole book is the Apostles' Creed. There is nothing in this book overtly religious. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. He's not preaching. He's not evangelizing in any open way. He's an ordinary mind speaking to ordinary people, relating to us on the level of our ordinary minds. But at the heart of the work, he himself says, and if you think about it when you're done, you'll see it, what he's doing is defending the Apostles' Creed. That's in... I've forgotten the dates. I think 1908, somewhere around 1908 he published. Um, he doesn't convert to Catholicism until roughly 1920, somewhere in there, later. I think he's already Catholic. There, there is nothing that he says that doesn't make this case. If you follow along and listen to the brightest minds of the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century, you'll be taken up with all these minds and think, this is the way things are. He started that way as a kid. He believed in all of them. And he found himself troubling over all of them and, and slowly realizing there was something wrong with each one of them. What he says is this, if you follow all of them, you think you're in touch with the times that you're current. You're believing the most sensible discoveries, the most recent scientific discoveries. But he came to a point and realized that um, all of them were wrong. All of them were preaching some kind of a doctrine and every one of them was a form, was moving us towards a kind of enslavement. They were actually undermining our free will and our minds. The, the titles of the second and third chapter the maniac, a maniac, people in a madhouse. He's going to say 50% of the 50% of the people holding chairs in in, in literature in college are madmen. Think how well that would have gone over in England. Um, title of the second chapter: maniac. Title of the third chapter: suicide of thought. Where did C.S. Lewis get abolition of man? you can trace him directly back to Chesterton. We've read Abolition of Man. That's a stark title. Chesterton is saying there's something 
about the modern world that's not right. We have lost our minds. Every one of these works that we've been reading is an attempt to help us recover our minds because without them, our faith is weakened. Okay? So we took a break. We're going to do Chesterton. We will spend um, roughly four weeks. I, I think we should be able to two, two chapters a week. And then we'll have our dinner night. And then I'm going to do, we're going to do the Gospels. We're going to, so everything has been pointing us to the Gospel. We're going to, I don't want to do all of them. It's just too much. We're going to do Matthew and John and the book of Revelation. And I think you're going to be stunned. Maybe not, but I was stunned. I think you're going to be stunned. We hear readings every week. You're, you know, through a cycle, three-year cycles, we hear readings all the time. But we never hear a gospel in its entirety. And so we get parts. If you put those parts in the whole of a gospel, if you read Matthew as Matthew, I think you're going to be shocked. I may be wrong on this, but... And I'm almost sure you'll be shocked with John. And, um, and then we'll do Revelation. And for those of you who are up to it, <laughs> we'll go back to sanity and literature. <laughs> so, you know, I'm, anyway, that's, so a month from now, we should be able to finish Chesterton. We'll have our dinner night, take a break, and then we'll do scripture. So everything that we've been doing has been pointing us towards scripture. Everything that we've read has its source in scripture. Leo, John Paul, Benedict, C.S. Lewis, Chesterton. We're going to find out where all this came from. What were they seeing in Christ that apparently lots of people don't see? Um, and I'm saying that, um, um, you've heard me say this before, I think the Protestant world is missing a lot of what goes on in the gospel. And I think today lots of Catholics are not seeing the profound richness of our faith. So we'll finish with um, scripture and then we will um, take a break again, hopefully this time without COVID. And then we'll pick up, we'll go back and pick up literature again. So let me Marilyn, did you have, did you have? Oh, I just thought you had a couple of movies on the table. Did you see that movie, The Chosen? No. Uh, that's something you might want to watch. Okay. Let's see, was that Netflix? I'm oh, canceling okay. my subscription to Netflix. We've been with Netflix for 20 years, but I, I've got serious misgivings about what's going on with Netflix. I gave those movies for anybody who wants them. I mean, I, they weren't on loan, but anybody, one of them is called uh, Quickly Down Under, and the other one is called Man on Fire. Man on Fire has got some real violence in it. I happen to love it, but... Denzel Washington. Hmm? Yeah. Denzel Washington. Say again? Right. Have you seen it? Do you like it? Yeah, good. Good. Okay. Um, any questions about our... We're picking up again. Again. So, <laughs> back in boot camp. Um, any questions about what we're doing? 
Okay. Let's. Um, I know I've done this a good bit lately, and I'm aware of that. Ordinarily, we I ask for prayers, you know, and I try to keep the number down because it could get really large. But since we haven't been together for a while, I'm not going to do that tonight. I'd just like to say a prayer, and then what I'd like to do is go back to Wreck um, of the Deutschland and finish it because I'm not at ease with the way we finished it last time. So I'm going to read the last few chapters of Wreck of the Deutschland, make some comments, and then we'll start on, on our work, okay? Every week we start with a prayer. We do a lyric poem that generally reveals Christ somewhere at work, but it's not an abstraction. It's not an idea. It's an actual concrete experience, which to me is really important. Um, so, so sorry. So um, tonight, to, um, for our prayer, what I'd like to do is go back to the reading this weekend. For those of you who are at Mass, should have all been there. Um, um, I don't know that I can give you a reason. The reading will be its own reason, you'll see. But it, to me, it speaks so directly to everything we're doing. But that may not be obvious, but let's see. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. This is from Paul in his letter to Corinthians. I'm going to read it all. I don't, you know that I don't ordinarily do this, but I think it's good for us to be aware of this. So, Brothers and sisters, we hold this treasure in earthen vessels that the surpassing power may be of God and not from us. We are afflicted in every way, but not constrained, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our body. We are on the cross with Christ every day, all day long. over the course of our lives. For we who live are constantly being given up to death for the sake of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since then, we have the same spirit of faith according to what is written, I believed, therefore I spoke. We too believe and therefore speak knowing that the one who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and place us with you in his presence. Everything indeed is for you so that the grace bestowed in abundance on more and more people may cause the thanksgiving to overflow for the glory of God. The word of the Lord. Sorry, hold on. Lord, um, we so often look at death as an awful thing, 
when people we love die, we grieve. Um, it has been our constant prayer, as long as we've been together, that we find in those occasions um, an offering of a grace. The church asks us, you ask us, to be everywhere and always thankful, no matter what. When things go, don't go the way we want, we're asked to be thankful. Um, it's as if we're constrained to put away pride by our afflictions, that we learn who we are, the ways we don't love like you. And death is formidable. It's the one thing that probably frightens most of us because in death we're going to face our judgment. According to Paul, um, For we who live are constantly being given up to death for the sake of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. We're dying. This is what, I mean, those of you who are here, when we did Hamlet, you remember the graveyard scene, Hamlet discovers that death was with him from the, from, from the beginning, even if he didn't see it. Remember with the joker, the clown. He's looking at Yorick's skull, and Yorick was the man who played with him when he was a kid. So death is always with it. It's been with us from the beginning. The strange thing is, um, how did I put this? Um, but because of you, death is a mercy. You died on a cross. You suffered a horrible, horrible crucifixion for us. We're allowed to go through that crucifixion day by day, dying. And here's my point. Enjoying life. Yeah? We're glad to be alive. We're glad to eat. We have meals. We have our health. Um, we have a next day. We have our family. We have occasions like this. There is so much to be grateful for. And we're dying. Can any of us think of a greater mercy than to participate in your life while we take a joy in living? So, for your great mercy, um, thank you, Lord. Strengthen us in our faith. That we learn to correct ourselves, to discipline ourselves, to teach us to be grateful, glad for all that happens. Because even in suffering, we know you are at work. That was the great truth we learned from Boethius. Um, you allow evil, evil's not a thing in itself. You allow, in order to protect our free wills, but also to bring good out of it. So no matter what's going on, no however bad it looks, we know that you're at work bringing some good out of it. That doesn't mean we resign ourselves or get passive or let it go. You ask us to stand. Joan of Arc was a warrior. She fought. Francis um, gave his life to peace. Your saints are everywhere. Help each one of us in this room find his sainthood. Whatever it is, give him, him, her,
courage to be whoever it is you've given him or her to be, to help bring your kingdom here in what we do. Um, we offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Okay, let's finish the wreck. Um, I want to go to the very end of the wreck of the Deutschland. We, we ended it last week, but I, don't, I hadn't prepared for it, and I, and I was sorry for the job I did on it, so I want to go back. Wreck of the Deutschland, the end. You remember, by the way, just to, to your credit, you guys, all of you, have read two of the most difficult poems in the English language, to your credit. One of them is Wreck of the Deutschland, and the other one is um, 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 The Hours, the Horne, the Hours of the Church by Auden. So each one on the horny, the hours of the church. Those are those are the longest poems we've read together. Bless your soul that you're still here. Must be something wrong with you guys. Um, two of the most difficult poems in the English language, and by far Hopkins' wreck is the more difficult. Remember, he's he's at home in his study, upset and grieving over the death of these five nuns who were forced to leave their convent because of the Fox Laws in Germany. And he sees that as a crisis for Western civilization. He sees that as a trial. And it, it leads him to this, con this meditation on God, why God allows this. It's the Job story. It's the Boethius story again. And he tries to recall the experiences they unfold while the ship has banked uh, on this shoals off the coast of England, remember? They're in a storm, they're dying. And Mary's question last week, or last time, I thought was profound. And I don't know that I can answer it, except in the way that I did, Mary, and, and, and don't know how, ad how adequate that is. But how in the world could he have known, you know, this one nun um, rises above the others in her efforts to help. All the sailors are doing what they can to save the ship. People are dying. So people are risking their lives. You can imagine the situation. If you were on a ship and it was going down, you would be hysterically probably rushing around to help and still save your life. And the sailors are doing that. There's that one description of the sailor, remember, dangling by that rope. And Hopkins' word was dandling like a father dandling a child on his lap. Because he doesn't just see things the way we do in earthly terms, he sees things from, from the perspective of God. God's allowing this, his grace is at work. So it appears to us to be a kind of in, um, horrible suffering has a grace in it. And then he reaches that point in his narrative where, where he describes the one nun who's standing above the others crying out, Christ, Christ, Christ. And he asks, what did she mean in, in that moment? And he went through the list. Did she want to be rescued from the pain? 
Does she want a reward for her suffering? Does she want to be relieved in that moment of trial? And then he answers and says, no, no, it was none of those. It was Ipse, Christ, Ipsi, himself, the thing itself. So it wasn't doing it for a reward. Look what I can get if I'm good, I'll go to heaven. Um, it wasn't for these other reasons, to be relieved of the agony. I mean, we all know that there are times in our lives when we wish the world would go away and we could be left alone. It was for Christ. She wanted to be with him. Simply, that was it. And then he leaves it there, and then he ends the poem, okay? That's where we were. So I'm going to pick up there and go to the end. I want to just briefly comment on it, and then this will complete our work in the wreck of the Deutschland, okay? So, stanza 30. By the way, for any newcomers, you, you can go online to Literature's Prophecy, Google it, and go to the second page, the content page, and go to the appropriate categories, and you can find all the materials, the poems, the outlines, everything's available there, okay? If you have any trouble, write me an email. Just write me an email, and I'll, I'll try to help, okay? Stanza 30. Hey, Sue, heart's light, Jesu made sun. What was the feast followed the night? That's glory of this nun. Feast of the one woman without stain. For so conceived, so to conceive thee is done. That was Mary. But here was heart throw, birth of a brain, word that heard and kept thee and uttered thee outright. It's like a, a woman participating in Mary's life. Birth of a brain. Well, she has thee for the pain, for the patience, but pity of the rest of them. Remember, all the sailors didn't cry out, Christ, Christ. They're trying to save the ship. She's the only one that said, Christ, Christ. She wanted Christ. She has thee for the pain, for the patience, but pity of the rest of them. Hard go and bleed at a bitter vein for the comfortless unconfessed of them. It leaves Hopkins once again, remember he started with the struggle. What is God doing? Why does he allow this? Now he's returned to that suffering because he knows all these people are going to go down unconfessed. They didn't have time for confession. No, he says in response to himself, not uncomforted. Lovely, felicitous providence finger of a tender of, oh, of a feathery delicacy, the breast of the maiden could abase so, be a bell to ring of it, and startle the poor sheep back. Imagine the most delicate women, because I'm going to, don't call me feminist if you can for a minute. Women are far more delicate than men, I believe. Men are brutes next to women. Men are, women are far more delicate. Suzanne will make arrangements of flowers and take time with it that I would... And he's saying of God that he's far more delicate than they are. Take the finest delicacy of a woman. God's delicacy is going to be infinitely greater, whether men are around or not. Or <laughs> the breast of the maiden could abaso be a bell to ring of it and startle the poor sheep back. That death 
called all the sheep back. So even though it was a horrible death, it served as a reminder. There was a grace in it. Started the poor sheep back. Is the shipwreck then a harvest? Is everybody following? So even though it's a shipwreck, it's actually harvesting. It's in, in the suffering that goes on around us, we're reminded not to take death for granted. It, it wakes us up, yeah? Um, just when we're complacent and we learn somebody's got COVID and dying or whatever it is, it startles us. It calls us back to ourselves. So it's the shepherd calling the sheep back and startled the poor sheep back. Is the ship ran then a harvest? Does Tempest carry the grain for thee? Is that the Eucharist? It's a blessing. I admire thee, master of the tides of the Eor flood. What's the Eor flood? That's um, Noah. Remember, God's great anger. He flooded, people have become so bad that he flooded the world. Is everybody with me? I admire the master of the time. <laughs> Nothing goes on in this world that isn't under God's providence. He created, he knows every one of us more deeply than we know ourselves. We cannot hide from him. However much we'd like to hide our sins, he knows them more than we do. Okay. I admire the master of the tides. The t because remember, the ocean, as long as from Odysseus forward, from the Odyssey forward, the Divine Comedy, the Aeneid, the Tempest, Shakespeare, the sea is always the place where man doesn't belong. It's a grace. It's, it's where things get destroyed. It's not man's home. But it's also that place where we learn to discover who we are when we're not at home. I admire the master of the tides, of the your flood of the year's fall, the recurb, the recovery of the gulf's sides, the girth of it, the wharf of it, and the wall, that is, it contains it all. Staunching, questioning ocean of emotionable mind, ground of being and granite of it. He is the ground of all these things, like the ocean, which is indefinite, hard to control, but he puts a limit on it. Ground of being, granted of it, past all grasp, God thrown behind, death with a sovereignty that heeds but hides, bodes but abides. He's always there. With a mercy that outrides the all of water, an ark for the listener, there's the ark again, for the linger with the love glides lower than death and the dark, a vein for the visiting of the past prayer, bent in prison, the last breath, penitent spirits, the uttermost mark, our passion plunged, giant risen, the Christ of the Father, compassionate, fetched in the storm of his strides. This stanza presents real difficulties. I think he's suggesting um, um, something like purgatory, that um, underneath our efforts, to recover Christ, to do penance, there is this death and love deeper than anything we can know. So whatever struggles we have, remember when we read Dante in the Purgatorio, all the sinners in Purgatory were just like the sinners in Hell. 
They're all sinners. They're not without sin. They're sinners. But the difference is they know they're in sin and they want to do penance. Because underneath them is this love greater than any sin they have. It's a reason for holding on to our faith when we have no reason for holding on to it. Remember, faith is faith when we no longer have a reason for having faith. Love is a love when we no longer have a reason for loving. Hope is hope when we no longer have a reason for hoping. They're all supernatural virtues. They take us beyond this world. That's a reminder that God is always there underneath things even if we don't see him. Now burn, newborn to the world, double-natured name, that's Christ, the heaven-flung, heart-fleshed, maiden-furled, miracle in Mary of flame. Christ came out of her, the light of the world, this flame. Mid-numbered, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, he in three of the thunder drone. Not a doomsday dazzle in his coming, nor dark as he came. It wasn't like Lucifer being thrown out of heaven in darkness. Kind, but royally reclaiming his own. He came to call us back. A release shower let flash to the shire, not a lightning of fire hard hurled. It's a flash, it's a brilliance. It's like heaven was brought among us. Dame at our door, drowned and among our shoals, off the shore of England, Remember us in the roads, the heaven haven of the reward. Our king back, O oh, upon English souls. Let him eastern us. I love that. Easter is a verb. Isn't that wonderful? Easter. Let him eastern us. Be a day spring to the dimness of us. Be a crimson cresseted east. The brightness of the east coming. He's praying that England will recover its Catholic character because it's lost. Remember, we, in the beginning, Germany was lost when it um, confiscated the properties and forced the Catholics to go underground. He grieves for Germany because in that sense it lost itself as a nation. But here he's grieving for England and praying that she will recover what she once had. Our king back, O oh, upon English souls, let him Easter in us, be a day spring to the dimness of us, be a crimson cresseted east, more brightening her rare dear Britain, as his reign rolls, pride, rose, prince, hero of us, high priest, our hearts, charities, hearths, fire. There's that compound of adjectives, remember? They're all modifying fire. Fire has all those attributes. Hearts, charities, hearth, fire. Remember, the hearth is the, the center of the home. It's the warp by the fireplace where we gather. Our thoughts, chivalries, throngs, Lord. So he ends the wreck with a prayer to God that England will recover what she once had. Um, I'll, I'll take a minute, but I don't want to take... You know that these poems are far too deep. But I'll take a minute for any questions, you know, to, but just to handle them briefly because our, our work is still ahead of us. This is the easy stuff. <laughs> any, any questions or comments about... I hope you'll all go back and read it. 
you know, on your own. Just read it on your own. Um, feel the lines. Remember what I've said. Very often you can feel things you don't quite understand. And there's a knowledge in your feeling that sometimes is superior to your head. I know this is probably more true for women. Because um, I think men live more in their heads, but I know that's a disputable question, but you know that sometimes a woman will have a sense that something's going on with her husband and she'll say is something wrong. And typically men don't talk about it. She has a sense of something, she feels something. St. Thomas calls that knowledge by connaturality. It's a knowledge by sympathy. You can know by a sympathy, an identity. And, um, so when you read it, don't feel like you have to conceptually grasp it. Read it, enjoy it. If you read it again, it, a lot of it begins to get clear. It'll, it'll work itself clear. Any, any comments, sir? Say? Is it? Wow, good for you. Holy cow. Are you a Hopkins lover? I, I, my daughter-in-law is, and she's having a, a dinner and competition. Whoever, there's a prize for whoever recites it or memorizes it going best. Wow. Let us know. I want to know who gets the prize and for what work. <laughs> tell, her from, tell her from me, I'm assuming somebody's going to recite the whole of the wreck of the Dutchland. I <laughs> <laughs> No, no questions or... Mary, yeah, go ahead. I just thought it was awfully sweet, I guess that's how you would say it, in number 34, where it says when they're, the end when she's died, or they're all died, and he's relating it to Christ is coming. And he says, not as a doomsday dazzle, and so on, kind, but royally, claiming his own. I thought that was very sweet. Yeah. A released shower. Like it wasn't a storm, it was just yes. a shower. Yes. Good for you, Mary. And not lightning of fire parker. So I just thought that was very delicate, like you said, delicate, very gentle, very sweet. And blinding bright. Yeah. Good but for you. You have to look at it that way. Yeah. You look at it as yeah. horror. Yeah. Wow, good for you. If we can bring our faith to our uses of reason, what reason opens to us, it's like reason just enlarges. There's just so much more there. Yeah. Because you can look at all of life as a horror or a Yep, yep, yep. For true, for sure. Okay. Um, okay. Um, I want to try to do um, I want to try to do what I shouldn't be trying to do, but two, two opening comments um, to the work that we're about to start with Chesterton. Um, 
I've already forgotten one of them. Um, one of them is, I'm just going to do a quick review of all the disorders that we've covered in the last couple of months. It's just going to be a very, very quick overview, but I really want you guys to have some sense of this. If you've got a son or a daughter in your family, or a husband or a wife, who knows, you know, or a friend, a neighbor, and you're dealing with a, a question of faith or reason, remember John Paul's work was entitled Fide Ratio, Faith and Reason, how you respond. So here's a, a very, very serious question, and I'm asking it deliberately now when I haven't before because we're starting Chesterton, because I think he's one of the most amazing people I've... He, he's probably the most perfect representative of, of an ordinary man that I've ever experienced. He makes, he makes me aware more keenly of my own shortcomings and what I'd like to be, you know, if I work at it. Because he, he's so bright, but he has this wonderfully large, um, gracious heart. So here's my question. Can you disagree with somebody when what's at issue in our faith are fundamental differences between our faith and other? Set our faith against the Protestant world. Set our faith against the Islamic world. Okay? The two or the Judaic world. Okay? Let, let those be the major religions of the world. Um, some people would include us as under Christian, so we'd be included with the Protestant world. I'm going to separate us. Um, if, you, if you look at our faith in terms of the Protestant world, the, the Judaic world, the Jewish world, or the Islamic world, and somebody raised a question about our faith and a, dog, um, a dogma, could you respond to it in the way we've been asked to do it by Christ? So, and let me put it more directly. Can you respond to a difference without arguing? Now, I want to qualify that, but I'm hoping you're all following because I know we argue a lot with each other. Husbands and wives argue, parents and kids. I mean, we argue. And I hope you don't hear me saying, don't argue. Joan of Arc argued. She did it with a sword. She was... But she never did it for herself. She picked up a sword and killed men, not for herself, for her own vanity. She did it for God. Can we differ with each other without arguing? And I'm, I hope, I'm not sure that's the best way to put it, because I think some, Chesterton argued all the time. He, he argued with the greatest minds of the 19th, 20th century, all of them. I mean, they're listed in this book. But he, but he enjoyed them and they enjoyed him. He had a sense of humor, he could talk with them, he could differ with them, he could make fun of them, go have beer with them. Can we differ with each other and still love each other? Can we argue without letting it turn into a fight? Can I put it that way? Is that clear enough? Can we engage our minds because we are so convinced of the truth of something without losing it? 
Because what we're going to find in this book is Chesterton's going to be taking on every single major disorder of the modern world. He's going to be arguing with specific men. Huxley, George Bernard Shaw. You can go on, down a list. He took every one of them on. And you can't read it without feeling there's a sort of sense of delight. Yeah? He's not even getting angry. He's not roasting them over fires. How many of us can get into a discussion about fundamental differences in dogma and not lose it? Okay? So it seems to me one of the great values of reading Chesterton is that he helps us to see that's possible. I'd never read a man in my life before who could answer all these. When I first encountered Chesterton, you know that I was raised Greek Orthodox. You'll never hear an argument like that in the Orthodox world. You will just not hear it. The, the, va the mind is not valued that much. I came to value it and read Chesterton and thought, holy cow, that faith and reason can go together like that? That he can use his mind to argue that, but have a sense of humor and, um, and not feel that he has to convince everybody and if he doesn't, he's a failure or something's wrong with him or the world just doesn't get it and we do. You're all following. I'm so, I hope I'm not just speaking for myself here. Because I look back at myself as a young English teacher just starting and differing a lot with my colleagues and I'm just embarrassed looking back at the stands I took and I wish I had been capable of bringing more to them, you know. So when we read Chesterton, we're not just reading a man who has a profound mind. He is as close to a sense of humor and charity of any man I've ever read making an argument. And I know you're going you're to sense that as you read it, okay? So that's our opening. But that's the question I'd, I'd like to leave you with, um, okay? And the other just major point is something we've gone over. Are you aware of the problems of our age? We've, we've gone through a number of works in which authors are answering them. Have you been paying attention? Can you answer them? Have, we've gone over it. In fact, I spent a couple of classes. Pragmatism, relativism, subjectivism, immanentism, materialism. You know, where will we go? We went through every one of them. Did you do your work? when you have a discussion with your son or your daughter or your husband or a wife or a friend, can you raise questions? Can you disagree? Can you ask questions that will make that person think about something to, when they don't think that way? Can you do those sorts of things? And still love them. I hope you know I'm asking a lot and I'm aware of my own faults of that as I ask them. But Okay, very quick, very quick. Two things I want everybody to hold on as we go over th this list. Two of the dominant qualities of the modern world that we have to keep in mind when we're defending our faith. One of them is this element of praxis.
I know, I know. Just, yeah, but I, I can't change it, so just, just hear my words and if you could just take them down. Praxis. Um, before Bacon, and I'll get to him in a second, the general approach to philosophy was that you read, you'd studied the world um, for whatever speculative knowledge it could give you. You love things for the sake of those things themselves, not for any power you could gain over them. Aristotle, Plato, all of them. That was the nature of the realist tradition going through the whole Middle Ages until the modern world. You studied the thing because you loved it. There was a good in itself. To study the universe, to study a human person, to study diseases, whatever it was. You studied it to know that um, as an end in itself. Okay. After the modern world, that changes. An element of praxis, of having to apply knowledge, enters the world and changes the way we are. Now, when we know something, we, we approach it with the idea that it, we have control over it. So knowledge equals power. The more we know something, the more power we have over it. The more I know my wife, the more power I have over her. The more a wife knows her husband, the more power she has over him. So the end is now power over something, to control it. Okay, that's one, this element of praxis. The second is skepticism. This is just two general terms that I want to underscore. Well, Chesterton's going to go into them. The other one is skepticism. With the Copernican revolution and the Descartes following, we approach the world skeptically. Um, we doubt things. That things mean what they seem to mean. Once you begin to be skeptical of things, the world disappears. And I'm saying that, in, just in, I wish I could underscore it. We, we've watched a couple of movies in the last week in which um, as the plot unfolds, you see that people have a certain understanding of something and they come to realize that it wasn't that way at all. Somebody was carrying out a plot and without that person knowing it, somebody else is carrying out a plot involving him. So we're inside box after box after box after box. That's the modern world. But it's nothing but boxes. Buddhism is like that. Hinduism is like that. The modern, modern secular mind is like that. We're skeptical. We don't, we don't trust what's in front of us. Okay? I just want to underscore those. We're going to come to those in a second, but I want to single those two things out because they have so influenced our mind that, we, um, that it affects the way we see things. Now just stop and think about this for a second. Was Christ's position in the world that um, the more we know something, the more, we, more control we have over it? He went to a cross, for God's sake. He was God. Yeah? And was he skeptical about things? If you, if you do not trust the thing in front of you, a chair, people, whoever we are, um, then on what basis do we believe in God? And how do we deal with evil? If nothing is as it appears to be, 
we explain everything away. Ultimately, there will be no God and there will be no evil. We won't be able to deal with either. We won't be able to deal with evil when it comes and we won't be able to deal with graces when they're offered. So just hold on to those two tendencies, okay? I just want to underscore them at the beginning. They'll, they'll become clear as we go on. But I want to underline them because it seems to me the whole modern world is, is infected with those two notions, okay? So let me very quickly go over. If you've got your notes, you'll see that um, all of the modern problems that every one of these people have dealt with, Leo, John Paul, Benedict, Lewis, all of them had their source in the last 400 years. So everything began when Christendom cracked. I call it a shipwreck in the 16th century. So we've been living with these disorders for 400 years. You think they're going to be easily answered? They're so much a part of our consciousness. And if we don't answer that, answer them, then we're just giving, it's like giving into a disease, passively. Except it's not like COVID or cancer. It has to do with our minds. Instead of being able to answer them, we're helpless. So it's absolutely essential that we know these things to, to make living our faith. So here, I've, I've, I've noted um, a number, okay, a number of um, influences. God bless. Doc, do you have the one with um, Luther? I'm sorry. Do you have the one with Luther on it? Is it there? Oh, good. Can I borrow it? Here's the interesting. Here's the interesting fact. All of the disorders that we're dealing with in our age had their beginnings in religious disorders, not scientific. They began with Luther and Calvin. Copernicus doesn't come until later. So here, here are the disorders that I've listed, and if you've got the, um, the list. Luther hung up his 95 Theses in 1517. His position, his position on religious on religion was that the most important thing was a private, intimate relationship between God and the individual person. So he did away with the papacy, he did away with a number of the sacraments. Those of you who did Hamlet with me, what's the problem of Hamlet? The fundamental problem of Hamlet is Hamlet has a private revelation. The ghost appears to him and says, avenge my death. Shakespeare knows exactly what he's doing. If the basis of your life is a private revelation, by what means do you measure it, find any help in the world on what to do? Because it's entirely private to yourself. What do you turn to in the, in the natural world? You've, you've put the natural world beyond you. So to make your own private view of the world, the basis on what you do separates you from everybody else. He did away with the papacy, a number of the sacraments. He, he kept the two basic sacraments for Luther were baptism and the Eucharist. But in the, in the Eucharist, he changed the Eucharist. It wasn't transubstantiation. It wasn't a, the wafer completely transformed into God's 
body and blood. It was consubstantial. The wafer kept its own nature in the act of eating it by an act of faith, private, it was transformed. That means when the Eucharist is over, for anybody who didn't consume a host, they could take the host and throw them away. Is everybody following? He made his subjective response to the world greater than the objective reality of Christ. So instead of the real presence, objectively real, he made a person's subjective response, his feelings, his faith, more important. The most important thing for Luther is an act of faith. So when you consumed it in that act, because it was purely private, it was changed. He called it consubstantiation as opposed to transubstantiation. So instead of receiving Christ objectively as a reality in itself, it depended on yourself. So an element of subjectivity enters the world with Luther. Relativism, subjectivity. It's one of the things that C.S. Lewis is taking on in Abolition of Man. That things are just a matter of our own private feelings. There's not an object an objective reality out in front of us. Is that clear? If, if it's not, stop me, please. Marilyn, did you have a question? Any, huh, Michelle? Anybody? So, Calvin did away with the sacraments as well. All of them. He said because Christ's life was crucified once, it was done once and for all. There's no need to continue. The lines that I wrote from Paul were undergoing a death every day, that hopefully were undergoing conversions, were struggling to grow. Gone. Once you make that act, it's gone. More importantly than that, he, he introduced this notion of predestination, that people are predestined to salvation or damnation before they're even born. That means some people are going to be damned before they ever make a choice. That to me is one of the most horrible doctrines of the modern world that I can think of. It makes God a murderer. And, and you, I, you, you won't know this, I think I've probably said it to you, I, I think Melville's Moby Dick, if any of you know the Ahab story, is that Moby Dick is an exorcism of those demons. Ahab grows, imagine growing up wondering whether you're among the predestined damned. What would that do to your psyche? How would you feel emotionally? What state would you be in? Wondering. How would you know? To, to live with it. It doesn't matter what choice you make. Or even if you make a bad choice that Christ would forgive you if you asked. So that even, David committed murder. He committed adultery. God loved him. It doesn't matter what we do. I mean, it does matter. Sorry, it does matter. But, but what matters even more is that if we turned him for mercy, we know. That's all gone. People are predestined to heaven or damnation. So both of them believed that we were corrupt, that the consequences of the fall were complete, that once we fell, we were corrupted, depraved. That's not Catholic. So this dark Manichaean view of the world enters the West through the Reformation. Is that clear?
We have a much darker black-white view of things. Damned, saved. There are no gradations. There's no subtleties. The natural world is gone. The natural world is depraved. We can't look to nature. Can't look. I mean, look. Could could Hopkins have written the wreck of the Dutchland if he had been a Protestant? There's no way. None. 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 Copernicus on the revolutions of the spheres, 1543. That's after, after Luther and Calvin. By the way, Calvin hated the body. He thought the body was awful, depraved. The sins of the body were abominations. That's his word. God, I just hate that, abominations. So sex was a bad thing. What is John Paul's answer to that? Theology of the body. When Christ entered the world, if we didn't know it before, the pagans half knew it, the whole physical world was sacred. The body is a good thing. We can foul it. We often sin. But we can recover. We can keep getting back up. We can, you know, go to confession. We can keep trying to grow. Calvin, the body is depraved. It's gone. It's ugly. It's bad. Think about those attitudes and the way they've um, infiltrated the Catholic Church. Sex is a bad thing. Copernicus, 1543, he discovered that the earth was not at the center of the universe. It took its place among the heavens, the other planets. This is crucial. In the Ptolemaic view, the earth was at the center of things and all the planets would go around it. All the planets were eternal. The only place where death existed was on the earth, the center of the universe. None of the planets could die. That's why the gods were named after them. Venus, Mercury, Mars, right? Is everybody following me? This is, you can overlook this, but it's crucial. The earth was at the center of it. It's where change, and it's where mutability existed. Change, things could change. Not in the heavens. The heavens were eternal. When Copernicus discovered that the earth was not at the center, but it, among the planets, it took its place among the planets, suddenly it, you could study things and have knowledge because knowledge was unchanging. It was eternal. Is everybody following? That's an awful subtle thing, and most people don't think about it, but you should, it's worth thinking about. In the Ptolemaic scheme, the earth was at the center of the universe. It's, it's where change and death occurred. Death didn't occur in the planets. When Copernicus discovered that the earth was among the planets, the earth took its place there among eternal things, and because they were eternal, you could have knowledge about them. Unchanging knowledge. So science suddenly offers itself as potentially a knowledge of things that is authoritative, final, absolute. Dr. Bob? Yeah. Wait, is everybody... Sorry, Mary, go ahead. Sorry. Okay, it seems to me that if, if they all thought on Earth we were changeable, they were eternal, and now we're among them, then they're just as death as we are. That would be my take on it. Yeah. So did Copernicus spread this thing, or did just people come up with it? No, people came up with it. But, I mean, the thing to know, Mary, when we did Hamlet and those things, we sort of went over this, that in the Renaissance, when these ideas first 
become known. It's a period of great skepticism that, that the church based its authority on the Ptolemaic scheme of things. When Copernicus showed that was wrong, that's why the church was so upset with him. It undermined the church, it undermined the authority of everything. Everybody was skeptical. What do we believe anymore? Um, what people tended to believe was science because science could show demonstrably that things weren't this way, they're this way. Um, if people had an immortal soul, they could live forever. It didn't change the idea of an immortal soul, but it did, it, it did make a difference in the way we knew things. Um, the thing that I want to emphasize here with the Copernican Revolution is that um, at that point, people began to look to science for an answer to all things. To the degree that the church had wrested its authority or built, played off of it, the Ptolemaic scheme, once Ptolemy was discredited, the church's authority was discredited. It was a time of real skepticism, real questioning. That's the beginning of the modern world. And there's a real turning towards science as if the assumption is that science can give us absolute answers. Now let me stop for a second. What's wrong with that? Let's just be clear. If, go, go ahead, what? No, you said what's wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> okay. Huh? If science could, by its own methods, discover that there was something wrong with the Ptolemaic scheme of things, what does that imply? It means that at some other point, some other discoveries will be made that will continue to deepen our understanding of things, that that's not the last word on things. The nature of science here, let me, is residual. The nature of science is residual. It leaves things behind. Who's going to follow the Ptolemaic universe scheme once it's been proven wrong? If you carry it forward, it's like an interesting artifact. Yeah? Um, New Newton comes along a century later and he will make discoveries that will modify our understanding of things then. Einstein comes along and will and adds modifications to what Newton did. Every scientific discovery is residual. It leaves the past behind knowing that there are more discoveries to make. The, the problem is the popular mind tend to take the discoveries of science as absolute and final. They're not. They're always provisional. More discoveries will be made. Always. But the popular mind makes it absolute. This is the way it is. And we know the problems of that because very often doctors will give us, you know, one doctor will say, this is the truth. Another doctor will say, this is the truth. Or this is what's wrong with you. And another one will say, no, that's not what, you know, I mean, that's a part of our daily experiences. Um, 
Literature is accretional. It's why we're doing this class. Science is residual. It leaves the past behind. Literature is accretional. It carries it forward. You all know that now. Every work we've read, I hope, is a part of what you do. It informs everything else. When we read Hamlet or whatever we're reading, you can't read it without reading, without being aware of the Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid, the Divine Comedy. Can anybody read um, Dante? Can anybody read Dante without having understood the Aeneid? No, you cannot because Virgil is Dante's guide. He's saying, here's the past. Learn from it. You cannot leave the past behind. You've got to carry it forward and redeem it. The whole chore of a Christian, a Catholic certainly, because we believe in tradition, is to carry day by day struggle to put our sins away. We carry the past forward, redeeming it as we go. I don't know about most of you, but I'd say that's a pretty heavy cross because lots of us would like to get rid of the past. One of the defining characteristics of the modern world is cancel culture. Get rid of the past. Create this utopian world. The Catholic says, no, we are a product of our past, even if we don't like it. We don't like our moms or our dads, the awful things, particularly from Freud. We we have to redeem them. That's a cross. I mean, here, Paul's thing again. God, I love that passage. Death is a part of our life. We should be glad to be undergoing a death that we can take a pleasure in, whatever our pains are. Fundamental source of the modern problems of the modern world, Francis, Francis Bacon's The New Organon. One of the major works up until that time was Aristotle's Organon, the way, the method. Bacon wrote a work called The New Organon, the Instauration, the Refounding. His claim was that knowledge, over, knowledge about nature was insufficient. He wanted to go back to the garden. These are, his, these are his words. He wanted to go back to the garden and recover the relationship we had when we mastered nature. So to know something is to give us control over changing it, make it serve us. So the idea of mastering nature gets introduced into the modern world then. Now think about that because he's saying that was the way it was in, in Eden. Are we in an Edenic world? Did we not fall? Are we not under the conditions of the fall? Is everything we do perfect? So this idea of controlling nature, of mastering it and making it serve us, gets introduced into the modern world through Bacon. Is that clear? This element of praxis, apply. What was the chief object, one of the chief objects of C.S. Lewis's argument, abolition of man, was applied sciences. Just when we think we master nature, what's his argument? Just when we think we've mastered nature, we do all these things to make nature serve us. What's his argument? Do you remember? Wow. Come on, you guys. Don't do this to me. 
Lori, what was his argument? Just when we think we master nature. Who are you talking about? Huh? C.S. Lewis and Abolition of Man. Remember he's talking about applied sciences. We're trying to use our power to control. Remember to... I remember. Hmm? I think I remember. Go. That when you control nature, there, there's a little group of people who control nature, so they start controlling the other people. Yeah. And he gave the example of contraceptions or other things, you know. He also said that once we do that without knowing it, we end up becoming subject to nature itself. That we become nature. Nature is that which you control. Do you remember? Say it again. Say. Going against natural laws when you apply science and, and they're trying to answer to that and they're constantly trying to not follow the natural laws. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and that and you're I'm glad you, you went back to it because he makes a point that what he calls the way or remember the trunk of the tree or the way or the Tao. But once you try to stand outside of that and create a world of your own, you actually end up becoming nature, that which is used. Um, it's on the bottom of page 76. Here, um, he says, um, this on my 85, I'm not sure, but he says, the regenerate science which I have in mind would not even do to minerals and vegetables what modern science threatens to do to man himself. Because remember he says that one of the most inhuman aspects of the modern world is the belief that we can control another human being, the soul. To reduce the soul, my wife, you start applying Freud principle in your marriage. This is why you're doing it, this is why you're doing it, this is, I understand this, you know. When that starts, you, you, you become an object to each other. It's no longer, your wife is no longer a subject, and you're no longer a subject to her. She can use you for whatever purposes she wants. We're objects to each other, a thing to understand, to control. Remember, he has that line about once we turn it on the soul, um, that we've gone way too far. The regenerate science which I have in mind would not do to minerals and vegetables what the modern science threatens to do to man himself. When it explained it would not explain away, when it spoke of the parts that remember the whole, while studying the it, it, a thing, would not lose what Martin Baber calls the thou, the thou, thou art a thou, thou art made in the image of God. Do I love you as an image of God? Is that the way I see you? Or in Freudian terms, do I see you as an object to manipulate, to make you better? In the Catholic understanding of marriage, we're meant to help each other become better. I don't think we're meant to stay where we are. We're meant to help each other. But, but the help is to become more virtuous, not to turn the person into an object. 
instinct by the only known reality of conscience and not a reduction of conscience to the category of instinct. Its followers would not be free with the words only and merely, I'm only doing this, I'm merely doing that. In a word, it would conquer nature without being at the same time conquered by her. Because remember, every time we conquer, all we're doing is showing that we've become a part of that nature too. We've turned it into a thing to conquer for whatever ends we have. Perhaps I'm asking impossibilities. Perhaps in the nature of things, analytical understanding must always be a basilisk which kills what it sees and only sees by killing. If the scientists themselves cannot arrest this process before it reaches common reason and kills that too, then somebody must arrest it. Because if we don't, we're going to end up treating each other as things. Chesterton's argument is almost all of the ideologies coming out of the 19th century, the rationalisms, are inhuman. They offer themselves as um, liberal, have means of freedom. His argument is every one of them is a form of enslavement. It, put, it takes away those very things that make us most human. To reduce the doubt to a mere natural product is a step of that kind, up to a point the kind of explanation which explains things away may give us something, though at a heavy cost, but you cannot go explaining away forever. You'll find that you have explained explanation itself away. You cannot go on seeing through things forever. The whole point of seeing through something is to see something through it. Skepticism, if it keeps taking us through things, where do we go? By what do we make any judgment? Where do we end up? How can we make any judgment that sounds at all? And if God appeared to us, why would we not doubt that? Skepticism is an acid. It just eats us away. The whole point of seeing through something is to see something through it. It's good that the window should be transparent because the street or garden beyond it is opaque. How if you saw through the garden too? It's no use trying to see through first principles. We have to come to some ground. Natural law, the Tao, the Jewish law, the order, God's order, the universe, what's there. If you see through everything, then everything is transparent. But the holy transparent world is an invisible world. To see through all things is the same as not to see. Bacon. The principal motive of studying science is to give us control over things. Okay? Major. Descartes, another major. Descartes is the founder of what's known as idealistic philosophy, idealism. Doesn't mean idealism the way we usually mean it, it means a philosophy. Descartes wanted to, after the scientific revolution, he wanted to establish a philosophy that had the certainty of sciences. That was his motive. And to do it, he said, he had to doubt everything. Doubt everything. Chesterton's going to take this up in the very first chapter. He had to doubt everything. He knew that in his dreams, when he was in his dreams, he thought he was in reality. So in his reality, he had to ask himself, how do I know that I'm not dreaming? So he had to doubt everything. It's called um, Descartes' dream. He couldn't trust the senses because the senses are not always reliable. 
So his, his position, beginning position was he had to doubt everything and start over again without anything because the senses weren't reliable. And his beginning point was, I think, therefore I am. So this is the interesting thing. Being, his being, his I am, I am being, is contingent, dependent upon thinking. It made thinking the primary basis of everything in the world. You doubt everything except the ideas in your head. What's wrong with that? Go ahead, Karen. Sorry? It's subjective. It depends on what you're thinking might be different. Right, right. right. Are ideas always right? If he, can, if he can begin as he does by saying, we can't rely on our senses because sometimes our senses deceive us, do our ideas never deceive us? The great, Chester is going to make the argument, the greatest problem in the modern world is intellectual. Second chapter, the maniac. Third chapter, suicide of thought. The gravest danger of the modern world are peop is from people who are trapped in their heads, in ideas. They've got these ideas, they govern their life. Do they take seriously the microphone in front of them? <laughs> the woman sitting down next to you or man? Aristotle would begin, St. Thomas, St. Thomas would say, no knowledge gets in the mind that doesn't come from our senses. But the beginning of everything is in our bodies. The modern world is too proud. It's in its head. We don't give enough credit to the things in our body. Our bodies make mistakes all the time, yes. But I'm going to go out on a limb here. Our minds are far more likely to make mistakes if they're not grounded in the physical world. This is, we are not angels. We are not angels. We are corporeal creatures. We have bodies. That's the great glory. If, it, if, it, if nobody understood that before in the pagan world, how could you miss it with Christ? Christ took on a body. He gives us the real presence. It's him, soul and body. So Descartes says, doubt everything, except the ideas you have in your mind. So this another element of skepticism enters the modern world. You cannot trust things that are right in front of you. Darwin, evolution, the survival of the fittest. If evolution is real, it means things are going where they're going, whatever we decide or not. There can't be any free will. What we decide won't matter. Evolution is a process beyond us. So it directly attacks our ideas of free will. Chesterton's going to get on this a lot. Marx, we talked about this, it brings down heaven. Marx wants to bring heaven down on earth. Remember that phrase, don't, imit don't imitatize the eschaton. Imminent means bring down eschaton or final ends. Don't try to make final ends real here. This is not heaven. Every attempt to make this heaven <laughs> ends up as a disaster. Look at communism. I mean, you know, 
The whole modern world thinks it could create a secular state. The modern world is committed to the idea that we can create a materialistic state, the basis of which is matter, not God. China, Russia, America's even going that way. The state, utopian, the, the utopian socialists in our world that, that are pro proposing utopian ideas that we, if only, here's, here's the great irony. To, to me, it's just, it's so stunning. The problem with the poor is their environment and heredity, okay? Change environment and heredity, that's the argument. I'm not making this up. Change environment and heredity and everything will be okay. We'll have a classless world and everybody will get along. So the trouble with the poor is that they don't have everything the rich have. Look at the rich today. In what sense could we say they should be a model for everything that we do? How well do the rich live their lives? Drugs, addictions, divorces, abortion. I hope, I hope in everybody's understanding. The, the condescension of people who take that utopian view, if we can only change the conditions of things, we would create this perfect world. Well, look at the world in which these people have those things. The greater number of them are in misery. You have so many people right now, though, that are trying to push that idea on you. For sure. So now, where are you? You got, you got all this up here pushing that on you. So, where do you balance it here? <laughs> That's where I get right. confused. Right. Try to move this way and say, okay, well, maybe they're quite right. And then yeah. Yeah. They, they want to control it. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And it's so preponderance, it's such a preponderance of it. I mean, it's just a dominant, more so in our, because our age is far more secular than our age was 100 years ago or 150 or God isn't as much a part of our, I, I don't want to, I mean, that's a really, you're, I mean, you're touching, it's a really complicated situation, Bob. Let me just say this. I remember the words of a sister at the first college where I taught who said, um, you want to teach somebody how to fish, not fish for them. And if you try to do everything for somebody, you're going to make them dependent on you. You want to try to help people become more independent, but you can't do it with the idea that if you do, you're going to create a heaven on earth because that'll kill you at the beginning. We cannot create a heaven. The, cro the cross is real for us. It's here, that's our call, it's the center. We're asked to somehow make things better without giving into those illusions, is the only way that I can you know, put it. Chesterton's gonna take every one of these up. Marx, Freud, the interpretation of, so Marx's Communist Manifesto, 1848, so we're, we're we're in the century leading to Chesterton and C.S. Lewis. They're just around the corner, okay? Freud, Interpretation of Dreams, 1900, Introductory Lectures on Psychoanalysis, 1915. These are Marx, Darwin, Freud are the dominant thinkers at the end of the 19th century, and they're going to affect all of the writers that we're going to read when we pick up again. Melville, Dostoevsky, Hemingway, Faulkner, whoever it will be. And we will see concrete, so it won't, we won't be experiencing ideas in our head anymore. 
we're going to be in the lives of people like ourselves who are living out the consequences of these ideas. This will be our world. Freud um, argued that man had no free will, again, that man was perverse, he was governed by what he called um, what's polymorphous perverse, polymorphous perverse that all these multiple forms of per sexual perversity. And the principal one was the Oedipal complex. The, every young boy wanted to grow up and marry his mother and have sex with her, and every girl sex with you know. All the, where do you get the? I, he got them largely from Sophocles, but I, I don't want to go there. But where did he get this? How could he prove them? Um, Freud was looked at as a scientist and taken as a scientist. All of his thinking is speculative, purely speculative. There's no sign. He can't prove that stuff. None of it. None of it. He claims man has no free will. All these things are determined. If they're determined, how can you get out of them? Because analysis shouldn't help. So there's a Gnostic, a Gnostic element to Freud. He believed that with enlightenment, you could get free. With enlightenment. That's Buddhist. Does enlightenment change your will? Does suddenly realizing why you steal things correct the tendency in you to steal things? Or let's say you have a strong sexual urge. Does understanding it with your mind turn your will? How do you change the human will? It was one of the problems with Plato. Does, does knowledge of something affect determine what we do with our will. Plato said no. We know it's wrong to steal. Does that mean we don't steal? We know it's wrong to have bad impulses. Does that mean we don't have them? How do you change the human will? The church's answer is you can't do it without God, you can't do it without faith, and you can't do it without the sacraments. Those are acts that involve the human will, not just the understanding. Freud is, like these modern rationalists, he's in his head. Once again with all these theories. Now let me stop there. That's a quick rundown. Sorry, I meant to... That's a quick rundown of the major disorders that we've inherited since the 16th century. For 400 years, we've been living under these currents of thought. As more and more people have turned away from the church or God, they've done it believing in these positions. That the, this is the way the world is. Science, Freud, Darwin, Marx, go where we will, Descartes, all of them. Is everybody okay? Chesterton is going to take every one of these up and he's going to answer them. Um, Freud had a profound grasp of the animal unconscious, what we call the unconscious. He had no grasp, none, of the spiritual unconscious. He didn't believe in God, he didn't believe in grace, he didn't believe in those things. Look at Dante in the underworld, look at Homer, look at Virgil, look at all of them. You can't read them without being aware that there are all these things going on in our spiritual unconscious that are expressions of grace. Shakespeare had them. And we've done Shakespeare, not Freud. 
So in the modern world, we have, um, we have um, gone more deeply into the human mind. Chesterton's argument is that in doing that, we've, we've approached a condition of insanity. The maniac suicide of thought. Those are the titles of the first two chapters. What's wrong with the human mind? What's wrong with the intellect? Islam has a faith. The Protestant world has a faith. The Catholic world has a faith. What's the difference in the way that a Catholic looks at the ground of his faith in reason and the way that a Muslim or a Protestant would? What do we mean when we say faith and reason come together? How important is reason? Leo, John Paul, Benedict, C.S. Lewis, now Chesterton, every one of them is saying, we've lost our minds. It's unsettled our faith. We need to recover our minds if we're going to live our faith better. Okay? Let me stop there. I, I, I wanted to get into the... In fact, I'm going to read just to get us going. I'll just read a couple of passages. Let me stop there. Any... Sorry for the long overview. I really wanted to gather this all together so that when we do orthodoxy, we know... Orthodoxy. Orthodoxy. He's saying, here are all these modern positions, and all of them are... It's like the Pied Piper. People are following these positions everywhere. I mean, Bob's right on. You know, you, these, are, these are the things put before us all the time. Not God, not our faith, not, not even reason. This, if anybody takes this position in reason, people are going to laugh at you. All these positions um, are the dominant positions of our world. Chesterton's saying there's only one thing that is a source of romance and adventure. Get that. You want to have a free life? Believe in immanentism, Buddhism, subjectivity. Do what you want, do what you feel. I mean, you can go on and on. Every one of these is going to make you free. Chesterton is saying there's only one thing that is the source of adventure and romance. It's called orthodoxy. It's the center of our church. It's sanity. Try to hold on to your sanity in our world, and you'll understand. As a matter of here, listen. Does an insane man, can an insane man how to put this. Can an insane man see the wonder of the world around him, enjoy the beauty of it, and love it, if he's lost his mind? It's only the sane man who will see those things, who will feel wonder, who will feel glad. So the question is, how do we recover our sanity? Our faith will not be what it can be if we don't do a better job of recovering our minds. That's what every one of these men has been arguing since we... So this is just a brief sort of summary of what we're doing. So I just really want to get... I'm going to read the beginning of Orthodoxy just to get us there, but let me stop for a minute. Any questions or comments on what we're doing? I didn't mean to take this long, but... Any... This is what we put our time into for the last several months, whatever it's been. Mary, yeah. yeah I'm no, I'm glad, always glad. I'm so happy that we're doing all this because it's given me insight into the things people do or say that people I work with 
or even my own kids, the ideas that they come up with, where, where did they get to? Yes, I know. Yeah, and so it's, it's, it, it's, I see it as a tool that maybe I can use. Um, yep. Or at least, you know. I'm glad you're here. I missed you for that time. I have no good words for you when we were on virtual. Should have been on that too with the rest of us. Sorry. For those of you who don't know, when we first started years ago, God, it's been three years, in one of our early, early meetings, I don't remember what it was, but I was quipping with somebody the way I do and said something like, stop whining. And two weeks later, I made some complaint about something and Mary said, stop whining. <laughs> I've loved her ever since. <laughs> By the way, our first class for us here was September 10, 2019. Three years. Good. So it'll be three years this September? September 10, 2019. Wow. The need, the, all of you need to do some serious thinking about your minds. <laughs> Here, I want to I read a couple of passages from Chester, and then we'll stop. Chesterton begins orthodoxy with these lines. This is just, I'm not going to go into it, just to get us started. He says, the only possible excuse for this book is that it's an answer to a challenge. Even a bad shot is dignified when he accepts a duel. When some time ago I published a series of hasty but sincere papers under the name of Heretics, some people were critical of him, and one of them said, we're really clear about what you think is wrong with the world, because he wrote, by the way, he wrote a book called, or a collection of essays called What's Wrong with the World, but he wrote this book called Heretics, and in it he, he challenges all of the, the major thinkers of the 19th century, every one of them, and takes them on. So one of his critics said, uh, well, we see what you think is wrong with the world. You've done really good at that. Let's see what you say about what's right with the world. Give us your philosophy of life. So his answer to that is even a bad shot is dignified when he accepts a duel. And he makes it clear that he's only too ready if, um, who was it, Mr. Street would, would offer a challenge again. He would pick up and write another book. I mean, he just has that sense of humor. He says on the following page, to show that a faith or a philosophy is true from every standpoint would be too big an undertaking, even for a much bigger book. It's necessary to follow one path of argument. This is the second page in. And this is the path that I here propose to follow. I wish to, sort to set forth my faith as particularly answering this double spiritual need, the need for that mixture of the familiar and the unfamiliar which Christendom has rightly named romance. Hold on to that. Everything that's familiar with everything that's unfamiliar. For the very word romance has in it the mystery and ancient meaning of Rome. Anyone setting out to dispute anything ought always to begin by saying what he does not dispute. Beyond stating what he proposes to prove, he should always state what he does not propose to prove. The thing I do not propose to prove, the thing I propose to take, as common ground between myself and average reader is this desirability of an active and imaginative life, picturesque and full of poetical curiosity. To love the ordinary things in front of us. That's the sole purpose of this book. 
Going down a few lines or over to the next page. If a man prefers nothing, I can give him nothing. But nearly all people I have ever met in this Western society in which I live would agree to the general proposition that we need this life of practical romance, the combination of something that is strange with something that is secure. We need so to view the world as to combine the idea of wonder and an idea of welcome. This world was not our own. We didn't create it. We should be here grateful that we've been welcomed into it and to have a sense of wonder. So it's those combination of things that he's attempting to prove and he says the basis for this whole book is the Apostles' Creed. He doesn't like flippancy. Um, people accuse him of being paradoxical. He says it's the last thing he tries to do. What interestingly he shows is that at the center of the Christian faith, the Catholic faith, is a sense of paradox, combining these mystery with science, what's familiar and strange, what's ordinary and extraordinary. These are the things that should make up our life. He's going to take up every modern position that threatens that principle. And he calls that orthodoxy. So let's stop. Okay. Any any comments or questions on sorry, I really wanted to I really wanted to get through the first chapter, but we'll do we'll do chapters two and three. We'll do the maniac and suicide. That's actually good. The maniac maniac Madness and suicide of thought. How to kill thought. <laughs> they sound so bleak, but you can't read them without, or like I can't, you can't read them without enjoying them. It's just, okay. See you guys all next week. All you stay safe. Watch out for this COVID thing, and I hope you don't get it.